Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. The History Channel Original Podcast. In the early 1900s, James Kraft was an ambitious young employee of the Shefford Cheese Company in Buffalo, New York. His journey to success and to founding the biggest cheese company in America started with a failure. He was working for the company in Chicago when he suddenly lost his job and was left stranded in a new city. So now James Kraft is sitting in Chicago. He's no longer working (laughs) for this company. This is Lloyd Metzger, professor of dairy and food science at South Dakota State University. But he does have $65 to his name. And in the early 1900s, that's not a bad chunk of change to have in your pocket. $65. That's about $2,000 today. Plus, Lloyd says, Kraft was the type of person who knew how to turn spoiled milk into delicious cheese. If I had to describe him in two terms, I'd probably say he's a problem solver and an opportunist. So instead of heading back home, he decided to take a risk. So I think this is an insight to his character that he could have packed up and gone home, given up, but he takes the $65 and proceeds to buy a horse and wagon and is going to build this cheese distribution business in Chicago. Yep, his big idea to make it in business was to hop on a horse (laughs) and travel around selling cheese, a product with a shockingly short shelf life. But Kraft was crafty. He started small, says Libby O'Connell, historian at the Smithsonian Institution. He has a wagon. He's selling big wheels of cheese. And people come and they want to buy a portion of that wheel. And he wraps it and sells it to them. And Kraft says to himself, you know what I need to do? I'm going to make this into individual portions before I go out and sell it. I'm going to have it all wrapped and say, people, this is what you want. Pre-wrapped cheese. It's going to be easier. It's going to be cleaner. And in fact, he was right. Kraft sold a whole lot of cheese. And so he took his idea, individually wrapped cheese, and changed the way Americans eat. This is The Food That Built America, stories of innovation, taste, and good eats. Today, we'll take you back to the early 20th century and follow how processed cheese became a staple of the American diet. I'm your host, Jonathan Hirsch. Back at the turn of the 20th century, the American cheese industry looked nothing like it does today. It was largely localized, says Libby O'Connell. So, cheese industry in the 19th century, not really an industry. It was local farms. Different regions had different specialties, like cheddar, Swiss cheese, Colby cheeses. And then, of course, you have fresh cheese, like cottage cheese in the southwest. You have queso fresco. You have Monterey Jack in California, but these are small products and you're eating pretty much from your local area. And as Lloyd Metzger says, cheese was sold differently too. Cheese is produced and then sold from the small factory or small, really small farmstead cheese almost that would go to the grocery store in typically a wheel or a block, and then it would be cut off and sold from there. 
But there was a big problem. The cheese would go moldy in a matter of days. The cheese would very quickly spoil. Grocers lost a lot of the cheese just from mold. Probably a significant, if not a majority, of the cheese that actually got produced probably didn't get consumed. Back in those days, refrigeration wasn't widespread. Cheese was really affected by the temperature and the storage method. So the first thing to remember about cheese in America at this time, or cheese in general, is cheese is alive. Okay, so it literally is growing and changing as it's stored. Again, especially in the early 1900s, getting a good piece of cheese was like gambling. <laughs> you really didn't know what you were going to get. Kraft knew that he wanted to sell a lot of cheese. He needed a way to stop it from spoiling, though, even if it was stored for more than a few days. Give Kraft a problem, other people are going to throw their hands up and wonder what to do. He's going to look at it as an opportunity and find a way to fix the problem and, oh, by the way, make some money while he's doing it. He started small, first packaging the cheese in jars. It was an attempt to get it fresher, make it easier for grocers to sell. But he had a bigger vision, says Gary Hoover, entrepreneur in residence at the University of Texas at Austin. He did begin to package it and wrap it. And he had these dreams of, man, how could I come up with one that I could like put in a can or something and it would last for longer than just like a few days because maybe then people would eat more cheese. To figure out how to solve that problem, Kraft looked to a new process that had been invented by Frenchmen named Louis Pasteur. It was a way to use heat to remove bacteria from products and improve the shelf life of wine, beer, and milk. And he's thinking, you know, Louis Pasteur came up with pasteurization and now they've applied it to milk and that's been a big success and people like dairy products and they're good for you. And man, there ought to be a way to pasteurize cheese. So he got to work. And in 1911, he starts experimenting, gets a big copper kettle, and he throws all different kinds of cheeses in there, American cheddar, all this stuff, mixes them, heats them, and he just gets a big sticky mess. And he plays with the temperature, but then he finds that the uh, proteins uh, and the fats separate. And it, man, it's just awful. Honestly, it sounds like a fondue night gone terribly wrong. He spent lots and lots of hours testing and stirring in this giant copper kettle trying to come up with a better cheese. He actually spent years melting and testing and stirring. And finally, in 1915, he had a breakthrough. He's stirring the pot as it heats and he loses track of time. He's like daydreaming. And then he realized, oh wow, the time's gone by. But he realized that by stirring the kettle, he had homogenized the cheese and it had come together and no longer were the uh, protein and the fat gonna separate out. And when he let it cool, he had nice pasteurized, homogenized cheese that would last. And man, that was a huge breakthrough. Kraft had become the first to pasteurize cheese. And it didn't stop there, says Metzger. Then he realized he could take that hot cheese and put it in another container. If he used a glass jar and actually put it in there hot enough and had a good seal on the jar, it would make a, what's called a hermetic seal, and then you'd basically have canned cheese. And canned cheese would keep for a really, really long time. So regular cheese at that time, even with proper refrigeration, would have probably molded within about 14 days. The Kraft canned cheese at that time would last a minimum of six months, and you didn't have to have it refrigerated. You could have just stored it on your shelf. Kraft knew he was holding on to something, so in 1916, he got a patent for his new invention. 
So his patents revolved around how you cooked and melted natural cheese and made it into this shelf-stable processed cheese. And he didn't stop there. Another big cheese company, Phoenix Cheese, who owned the Philadelphia cream cheese brand, was using a similar process for their cheese and applied for a patent right at the same time as Kraft. So James Kraft filed a patent that related to heating and mixing cheese. Phoenix Cheese filed patents related to using what's called an emulsifying salt. Sodium citrate specifically is the one that they utilized. But Kraft wasn't threatened. Instead, he saw an opportunity. They actually meet at the patents office and they come to an agreement that they will share each other's patents. So now Phoenix Cheese can use the processing technology that Kraft developed and Kraft can use the chemistry that Phoenix Cheese developed. And now it made both of their products phenomenal. So at this point, Philadelphia Cream Cheese was an important brand, but with the help of Kraft, it was gonna later become a $500 million brand. This largely was a result of applying the technology they learned in processed cheese to cream cheese. So essentially what they did is stabilize cream cheese. Soon enough, Phoenix and Kraft officially merge, becoming a huge cheese conglomerate. The big cheese, if you will. And the patents they secured would turn out to be crucial to Kraft's ability to remain on top. Kraft uses the process of emulsion, pioneered by Phoenix Cheese, to help preserve the cheese further. Metzger again. Emulsifying salts are critical in this reaction. They make everything easier. What was appealing to James Kraft was that it was consistent. The salts were added to the fat and water and became a bonding agent of sorts to help combine the three elements into a smooth substance. So when you take these three components and mix them together, you now make an emulsion. And an emulsion is what cheese is. It's what every pudding is. It's what ice cream is. It's what Cool Whip is. And it's, in fact, what Miracle Whip was. The new product Kraft had created, processed cheese. And that really changed the cheese industry and petrified his competitors. Here's Gary Hoover again. Needless to say, the dairy industry hates this. The cheese companies hate this, the cheese makers. And people are starting to buy it. So the whole world comes down on its head. The dairy companies, they go to court, the cheese makers, politicians, newspapermen would write editorials. Their point? This wasn't real cheese. It was something else. They wanted to brand Kraft's cheese as fake food. This was, of course, the 1920s, when pasteurized milk wasn't as widespread as it is today. The dairy industry looks at this cheese skeptically, and part of the reason why is that they're really struggling with implementation of pasteurization. This is Mireya Loza, associate professor of history and American studies at Georgetown University. Pasteurization is basically a process by which you heat milk up consistently at a low heat for a duration. And so they weren't sure how hot it had to get. They weren't sure how long it had to be heated. And then they were also convinced that it was changing the quality of their milk, that their milk was actually changing in flavor, in profile. There were certainly incentives for the dairy industry to adopt pasteurization. It could prevent harmful bacteria that could cause diseases, Metzger says. At that time, there was tuberculosis being spread all over, and a lot of it was coming from raw milk. But for dairy farmers, it was a costly and cumbersome process. And beyond that, they saw a growing business threat from Kraft. 
Kraft is taking the money they're making in the processed cheese side and starting to build dairy. So they're not only making processed cheese, they're also making natural cheese. So they're really squeezing everybody out. The dairy industry took Kraft to court. So they try to get the government to make them call the cheese embalmed cheese, just doing anything they can to try to shut Kraft down. After a lengthy legal battle, by the mid-20s, the industry forced the processed cheese label onto Kraft's products. And for a while, the general public shared the dairy industry's resistance to the new product. Customers were skeptical at first because, hey, it's not fresh. You know, I like my cheese fresh and I can get it at the grocer. And I don't know, I don't know about this. And is it really good for you? People just didn't know what to make of it, says Mireya Losa. They were concerned that this cheese was adulterated because it seemed supernatural for a cheese not to get moldy on a shelf. Kraft was losing money, but soon he would get a little boost, a little cheddar, if you will, from an unexpected source, the U.S. government. That's after the break. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. On April 6, 1917, America entered into World War I, sending millions of troops overseas. And it had to feed all those troops. Enter Kraft. He's got a highly nutritious product that can be shipped long distances and doesn't have to be stored in refrigeration. So it perfectly fits the issues that the troops are having. I think James Kraft saw a problem that the military was having and went, I've got the solution for this. His hunch? paid off. In World War I, the government bought six million pounds of his processed cheese, and those soldiers liked it. it. It lasted. They took it in cans all the way across the ocean, and man, that was a real breakthrough. The troops were hooked. So you would have had troops that have come back from World War I that had this product, and they liked it, and it was safe. And it was a food supply that didn't make them sick that actually tasted good when they're in the middle of trench warfare. They come home and they want more of it. So World War I really led to a boom in the craft business. Cheese had gone from small and local to big business. It was also becoming the perfect product for working people's diets, says Metzger. 
it would have been exactly what people at that time needed. They needed fat, they needed protein, they needed calcium, they literally needed energy. A hundred years ago, people actually worked. They were physically active, they needed the calories, they needed the energy. So it was perfect for that time. By the early 1920s, the Kraft Company was the biggest maker of cheese in the world. Kraft had cemented its status in American food. Here's Libby O'Connell again. So Kraft takes what had been a local and regional industry into being a national product. He does that through advertising, he does that through distribution, and he does that with a product that people felt that they could trust. Kraft wasn't just a pioneer in the process of making cheese. He was also able to envision a future where cheese would be known nationally for the Kraft brand name. Kraft was the first to have a national cheese and to understand the value of a national brand. But while Kraft was number one, it wasn't long before his company faced some serious competition. And it came from an unexpected place. Pabst, the Wisconsin beer brewing company, had been hit hard by prohibition. So it pivoted to making and pasteurizing cheese. How do you go from beer to cheese, you ask? Well, it's not as strange as it sounds. Beer is also pasteurized. And Pabst had already had a lot of infrastructure in place, says O'Connell. They had delivery wagons, they had the horse teams, they were set up, they had refrigeration, they decided to go into cheese. It produced its own packaged processed cheese called Pabst Et, and it became a fast success, eating into Kraft's market share. There was one small problem, Kraft's patent. Metzger again. When you have a legal patent, you have the right to practice something and you have the right to prevent anyone else from doing it. And you have this competitive product that is essentially the same, almost identical product as Kraft's Velveeta. Kraft immediately went after him. Kraft launched a lawsuit claiming it was in violation of his patent. Pabst argued that their recipe was unique. After a grueling legal battle, the court ruled in favor of Kraft. It was a big victory, but Kraft, ever the opportunist, had a proposition in mind for Pabst. He could have gone in and shut him down and said, you're done. You know, you lose all your money, you're done. But he realized he was going to make more money if he partners with them, makes them pay a licensing fee, and then they share in the revenue from continuing to manufacture at that plant. Just like he had done with his competitor Phoenix Cheese in the patent process, he chose to join forces with Pabst rather than shut them down. And when Prohibition ended in 1933, Pabst went back into brewing beer, and they sold their entire cheese operation to Kraft. Most of us have probably not tried the canned cheese Kraft had first become known for. But you've probably had Kraft singles. You know, those soft, individually wrapped cheese slices seem to be a permanent fixture in your childhood lunches. Well, as Kraft was building his cheese business, his younger brother Norman had joined him. And Gary Hoover says Norman had his own ideas for growing the company. And one of the things that uh, Norman really wanted to do was to come up with a way to sell cheese in slices because it was generally sold in big round wheels. The wheels, which would sit out in the open for long periods of time, would allow for more contaminants to enter the cheese. And Norman, like his brother, was a problem solver. He kept working at it and working at it, creating rollers and systems to make flat cheese, basically. And he spent 15 years working on that, 15 years before they finally perfected the system. And during that 15 years, the world changed. Prohibition ended, and World War II had helped grow Kraft's business even more. And post-war America was prospering, craving convenience. 
perfect time for the introduction of what we now know as Kraft Singles. And it really wasn't until the early 50s that the uh, Kraft company launched their cheese slices and they immediately became the most successful product in the history of the Kraft company. So now all you had to do was go to the grocery store, buy your Kraft cheese, and you didn't even have to slice it anymore. It was literally the coolest thing since sliced bread. It was just a different version of the slice. And now you had your sliced bread with your sliced cheese. This story is a once upon a time story about a boy who snacked one snack at a time and once in a while. Then he tried Kraft American Singles, which are made to be snacked one at a time and once in a while. Singles are individually wrapped, so every single one stays fresh, even if it's the last one in the package. Kraft American Singles. You probably remember having a slice in your sandwich or on top of a burger. O'Connell says their convenience is what makes them a hit to this day. It melts. You can make macaroni and cheese by just heating up your macaroni and you put the slice of processed cheese on it and it all melts. You don't have to make a cheese sauce. That's why they're so good in grilled cheese sandwiches and on hamburgers. They just melt really easily. Dennis Prescott, chef and cookbook author, agrees. You can melt it down. It lasts forever. You can put it in a sandwich, in mac and cheese. You can put it on pizza, for goodness sakes. It's going to be good. No surprise, singles are still everywhere today. Two weeks after I moved to Nashville, I got invited to a Super Bowl party. And I did not prepare myself for the amount of craft singles that was going to be at that Super Bowl party in literally 50 different dishes. It was on everything. I had no idea the amount of love that people have for that product here. And now Kraft has introduced timeless brands like Miracle Whip and Kraft Macaroni and Cheese. Mama's got the night in front of the show. You want to give me While it might be something we take for granted today, in the 1920s, Kraft processed cheese was a true innovation. The one thing you can say for sure about James Kraft and his brothers is that they were relentless in their pursuit of better cheese, more convenient cheese, and branding it and getting it on supermarket shelves. And in that, they succeeded far beyond their wildest ambitions. James Kraft in no small terms, completely changed the dairy industry in this country. It started with cheese distribution, and then it went into cheese preservation, but then he owned cheese factories and then just revolutionized the entire manufacturing process throughout the entire United States. It also really starts to soup up America's appetite for cheese, and we see that has continued to grow through today. James Kraft went on to serve as company president until his death in 1953. Today, Americans consume, on average, nearly 40 pounds of cheese per year, and Kraft is a multi-billion dollar corporation. In some ways, we're starting to see the cheese pendulum swinging back to those early, more localized cheesemaking days. Now we have this reinvigoration of the cheese industry where we have small producers again. Um, That's the big new thing now is tiny, small, farmstead-type cheese manufacturers that make their own cheese and then sell it on Amazon. And you now have the opportunity to buy this very unique cheese from an individual manufacturer. So in some aspects, part of the industry has turned around and come full circle in 100 years. But even as some consumers move back to small production, those craft cheese singles carry a meaning and nostalgia much bigger than the product itself. 
Cheese is such a part of our lives, and especially the era of, I think, adolescence, when you come home at a hard day from school and you get the Kraft mac and cheese. It clearly is a comfort food and always has been. For me personally, it's a grilled cheese sandwich. Any day ends up okay if you get a good grilled cheese at the end of that day. If you like this podcast, then you'll love watching the Food That Built America TV series on the History Channel. Go to history.com to find out how you can watch The Food That Built America today. The Food That Built America is hosted by me, Jonathan Hirsch. At the History Channel, our executive producers are Jesse Katz, Mary Donahue, and Jim Pascarella. Our supervising producer is McKamey Lynn. Jim O'Grady is our consulting editor. From Neon Hum Media, our executive producer is me. The series is produced by Muna Danish and Kate Mishkin. Our associate producers are Chloe Chobel and Rufaro Faith. Our editor is Maura Waltz. Samantha Allison is our production manager. Sam Baer and Josh Hahn are our mix engineers. Music from Blue Dot Sessions and Epidemic Sound. And fact-checking by Naomi Barr. The Food That Built America was originally produced by Lucky 8 TV for the History Channel. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.